Today we're going to look at Mark chapter 14, the last supper. It's my privilege to be able to share this word with you today. So if you've got your Bible or a Bible app, you might want to turn to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Earlier this year, I went to visit my father, and he was telling me about his uncle. And his uncle was a woodsman, or you might call him a lumberjack. And he was so tough, everybody just called him boss. And then my father went and got a photograph to share with me. I think we have a picture. Here he is. This is my great uncle, Boss. You see the family resemblance? Right? Maybe if I do this, does that help? Right. Photographs are a great way to remember. Whether it's a hundred-year-old photograph like this one, or the thousands of photos you may have on your phone, it's something you can hold in your hand and look at and remember a significant person, place, or event in your life. But sometimes to really understand something, we might need to take a step back. So I'm going to show you the rest of this photo. Here's my great uncle boss standing on the top of this tree. On the back of that photo, it says Northern California Redwood, 555 feet. And I look at that photo and I think man can do some amazing things if he just has the will and the endurance to do it, and maybe in my family's case, maybe a little crazy. <laughs> but how sad it would be if we went through our entire life putting all of our energy into something only to get to the end and find out we cut down the wrong tree. Has anybody ever asked you, what is God's plan for my life? Well, maybe the better question would be, what is God's plan? And you may remember we started out the year, Monty and Philip did a series looking at the big picture of God's Word. And we remember that the Bible is the universal plan of God to restore man's relationship with God. That is the plan. It's God's plan for you to have a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ and to know Him. But what amazes me about this is what we're going to look in Mark chapter 14 is that God uses people to accomplish his plan. So I wanted to look at how did Jesus use the disciples in his plan. And I got four key points to help you track along. So if you got your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? If you want to connect to God's plan and what God is doing in your life and around your life, the first thing you need to do is ask him. They're asking Jesus a question. But you've got to write, ask the right question. Notice what they didn't ask. They didn't say, we know a place where we can go that's out of the way, and we want you to bless our plan. They didn't say, I'm assuming we're going to go to the same place we went last year or the year before that, and is that okay with you? So before they even asked the question, they needed to submit. They needed to get their will out of the way. It wasn't their plan, not their agenda. It was what is God's plan. So they're asking the right question. Where do you want us to go? And sometimes this 
submission, moving our will out of the way, is sometimes the hardest part. But the good news for us, what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, for God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That tells us that God is at work in our lives by the Spirit of God trying to move our will in line with his will. And that's very, that's the very good news for us. But that's how we begin to submit. And then after that, we need to seek him. If you look at chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, it says, and he sent two of his disciples, that would be Peter and John, and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. This may seem obvious, but there's an expectation here that they asked Jesus a question and the expectation is he's gonna give them an answer. And so for us, sometimes we ask God a question, but we're not always listening for an answer. So we need to learn to listen to what God tells us. And so Jesus said to them, and he said, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water and follow him. This wasn't some man at random. Jesus had already gone before them. He already made the arrangements. This is just a visual clue to help them find their way. And a man carrying a pitcher of water in their culture would have been very unusual. It would have been easy for the disciples to see and to recognize. So for us, we need to listen to what God is telling us and then watch what God is doing around us to connect what he's telling us to our life. And so that's the part of seeking. It's listening and watching. But if we go on to verse 16... It says, and the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So that next step is to serve him. It wouldn't have done the disciples any good to say, hey, I see a guy carrying a pitcher of water. You don't see that every day. And then just go talk about what they saw. They needed to follow him and follow through with obedience and to serve Jesus Christ. It seems like a simple plan for us to follow. Submit, seek, and to serve. I remember in 1989, Janet and I were living in Charlotte, North Carolina. We were attending a large church. It's the church we met in. It's the church we got married in. I was working for a large engineering company. And at the beginning of that year, my employer came to me and said, we're moving your job to Lexington, Kentucky. But then they also said, if you don't want that, I have another job that you can do and stay in Charlotte, and it job is just as good. So what am I to do? I went home and I told Janet, I said, we need to pray because it's not our will. It's whatever God wants, whenever God wants it, wherever God wants it. We want to connect to him and to his plan. So we started praying. We asked our friends and family to pray. And as we did that, we began to feel like God was telling us to move to Kentucky. I had no idea why would God take us from North Carolina, move us over the mountains into this wilderness of Kentucky. But that's what we felt like. And so I told Janet, I said, before we tell anybody, let's pray for our family. Because at that time, her parents were living in Charlotte. My parents were living 150 miles east in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we said, let's pray that God will give them peace. And I remember one night, my mother called me and she said, Keith, I really don't want you to move to Kentucky, 
But I've been praying, and if you believe that's where God wants you to go, it's okay. I want you to go. And then that same night, Janet's mother called me and told me the exact same thing. And so I looked at Janet and I said, I guess we're moving. And so that was our plan to go to Kentucky. But where? My uh, employer, they gave us a map, and this was a map before it was an app, right? It was a piece of paper you had to unfold, right? That you could never fold back up again, right? And I put it up on the wall at work, and every day I would look at that map, and it had the Fayette County and every surrounding county. And I would look at that map, and I would pray over it and pray for every county and every city on that map, asking God, where did he want us to go? And going through that process, I finally got to a conclusion that God was telling me to go to Winchester, Kentucky, a place I'd never heard of, a place I had never been, and I told Janet, I believe that's where God wants us to go. And I remember we were at church one day, and we had a, it was a large church, so a lot of people coming out of one service, going into another service. So we were in a crowd, and a person passed me, and they said, Keith, I heard that you're moving. He said, and where are you moving? And I said, we're moving to Winchester, Kentucky. And I think that's the first time I ever told anybody, other than Janet, that that's where we were going to go. And a person standing next to me, he had his back to me, he turns around and he said, you're moving to Winchester, Kentucky, you need to go to Central Baptist Church. And I thought, that's kind of odd. What's, what's the chances somebody standing next to me would know that? And then a couple of weeks later, Janet and I, we were in our Sunday school, small group Bible study, like we have here, about a dozen people in our class. We had this couple visiting our class. And so I asked them if they were from Charlotte, and they said, no, we just moved here. And I said, where did you move from? And they said, Winchester, Kentucky. <laughs> and I said, that's interesting. I said, where did you go to church? Central Baptist Church. And I'm not the brightest person in the room. I didn't see a man carrying a pitcher of water, but I think even I could figure this out, right? God will direct your paths into his plan when you submit to him, seek him to serve him. God will do that. But it's pretty important that we need to learn how to listen to God. So if you jump down to Mark 14, verse 21, Jesus makes this statement. For the Son of Man is to go just as is written of him. And he's making that statement specifically about prophecy and Psalms and Isaiah that he would have to go to the cross to die for our redemption. But Jesus is making a bigger statement here in a general sense that everything in his life is guided by the word of God, which tells me everything in our life is guided by the word of God. So we could take a Bible each day and open it up at random and point to something and say, I'm gonna do this today. That's probably not a good idea. Right? You could read this like it's a guidebook with rules to follow, but God doesn't want you to follow rules. He wants you to follow him. You could read it like a history book, but then you may know about God, but you wouldn't know God. There's this great verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith is that action that's compelled by a strongly held belief or conviction. So what's going to move our belief and conviction into an action? It tells us from hearing. 
as God speaks to you and you recognize that it's God speaking to you, that's what's going to motivate your belief into an action. But how do we hear? Well, it tells us that too. Hearing by the word. So what it means is as we begin to know God by spending time in God's word, that we start to be able to hear God. So it's much better having a systematic plan where you spend time in God's word on a regular basis. We have reading plans that we established at the beginning of the year. If you're not in one of those, I encourage you to join that. And uh, it's not too late. Just jump in where we're at. It's better to join now than to not join at all. And you spend time in God's word. And as you do that, you start to know God, and then you can recognize his voice. My oldest sister, uh, Linda, she lives somewhere in Maryland. Uh, She'll call me maybe once or twice a year on a holiday or a birthday. We're very close. And, uh, yeah. And I remember years ago, uh, before cell phones, before caller ID, all of that, when a, when a telephone was this box that was on the wall of your house, you may remember those, and you had to actually answer the phone to know who was calling, that she called me, and it wasn't a holiday or a birthday. I answer the phone, I say hello, and then she just starts talking. And I had to stop and say, who is this? And she said, it's your sister, Linda. And then I started to think about it. Janet, if she called me at work, as soon as I pick up the phone and she starts talking to me, I know that it's her. So what's the difference? Janet is someone I spend time with every day. I talk to every day. My sister, not so much. Much harder to recognize her voice. Much easier to recognize the voice of the one you spend time with. So as you spend time in God's word, that's what this tells us, hearing comes by the word. It's spending time in God's word to know him is what enables us to hear him. So God uses people to accomplish his plan as we submit, seek, and serve him. But not only does God use people, God uses imperfect people to accomplish his plan. If you look at Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 17, it says, when, he was, when it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him, one by one, surely not I. I'm referring to these as the saints. So let's set Judas aside. These are the 11. Those are committed followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells them that someone is going to betray him. And they start and say, well, surely it's not me. But you can almost imagine how this plays out. Then they start looking around saying, well, if it's not me, then who is it? Maybe it's him. Or maybe it's him. I know I'm better than him. Maybe it's Matthew. He's a tax collector. I never did trust those tax collectors. Maybe it's him. And in Luke, it tells us that this evolved into such a debate, and they were arguing over which one of them is the greatest. Can you imagine that? It's Jesus last night before he goes to the cross. He has the world on his heart, and they're arguing over which one of them was the greatest. To such a point that Jesus tells Peter, even you tonight will deny me three times. But that tells me 
that they weren't perfect. That even in their imperfections, even in their mistakes, they were not going to stop God's plan of redemption. But that also tells me God can use us even in our imperfection. You may have heard of a program called uh, Evangelism Explosion. It was started by James Kennedy at Coral Gables Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. And it's where a trainer would take two people, and over a period of 12 weeks, once a week, they would go out and share the gospel. And through that process, they were learning and memorizing Bible verses to share the gospel and illustrations to go along with that. But every time we went out and we met someone, we would ask them two questions. The first question we would ask them, do you know for certain that if you were to die today, that you would go to heaven? Some would say yes, some would say no, some would say maybe or I don't know. But then we would ask them a second question. We would say, suppose you were to die today and you were standing before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And this is a great question because it's a non-leading, open-ended question. You hear what they really put their trust in. But then after they give us that answer, then we would say, is it okay if we share what God's word says about eternal life? And so we were at 12 weeks, and I was training two people, a good friend of mine named John, and I said, John, when we get to the next person, I want you to ask the questions, and you share the entire gospel. I will just watch and pray. So John started to do that, and he misquoted every verse. He messed up every illustration. He got the order all wrong. I couldn't follow what he was saying, and I knew what he was supposed to be saying. But we got to the end, and that person had tears in their eyes, and they said, tell me what I need to do to have eternal life. And in that moment, we, shared, we prayed with them, and they accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, forever changed and transformed a new life in Christ. And that's when I realized God is greater than our ability. He's greater than our memory. He's greater than our fear or our faults or our anxiety. He's greater than our past. He's bigger than our mistakes, that God can do great things. He can work through imperfect people to accomplish great things so people can know God is good, and he can use us despite ourselves. And if you look at Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 20, he makes a statement, and he said to them, is it one of the 12, one who dips with me in the bowl? For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Specifically, he's talking about Judas, Generally, he's talking about all those people who reject Jesus Christ. Despite God's love and appeal and mercy to them, they're saying, God's plan does not fit my plan, and I'm going to reject him as my Savior and Redeemer. And for that, they will be separated from God for all eternity. But what I want you to understand, that even people that reject Jesus Christ they're not going to stop God's plan. Right? Judas was not going to stop God's plan of redemption. In fact, God is so great that he can even use him in his plan. 
So we need to make sure that we understand that we serve a great God, that God is not small, that God is greater than anything we can even understand, that God can do great things even through us and even through people that reject him. What's even more amazing than that, that not only does God use imperfect people, God empowers imperfect people to accomplish his plan. Excuse me a second. We get to the part of that last meal that Jesus will have with his disciples. He takes two elements. He takes the bread and he takes the cup. And he uses these two things, things that we can see and hold in our hand so that we can remember the most significant person, place, and event that has ever happened since the beginning of time, that we can remember that Jesus came and that he died for us. You may think of this as the Lord's Supper or communion or Holy Communion or the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word meaning to give thanks. You may come from a church background where they practice this once a quarter or once a month or once a week. We do it once a week because it's so important for us to come to a point and be reminded what God's plan is, reminded that Jesus went to the cross to die for us. Remember the very first step to connect to God's plan was to get our will out of the way. And the Spirit of God does that in us as we remember him. This is a process for us to meditate on who God is, and then it starts to put God's will in our heart and not our will in our heart. And so we come at this time and we examine ourselves. We lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. And we run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such hostilities at the hands of sinners that we may not grow weary and lose heart. It's a time for us to remember. But I want to look at this through the lens of a traditional Passover meal. And if you're familiar with that, they would have four cups of wine to help them to remember how God redeemed them out of Egypt. And that very first cup is what they would refer to as the cup of sanctification. So I want to refer you to 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 9, it says, For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is in all caps. It does not mean that Peter is shouting at you, right? Which may not be too bad sometimes. What it means is the translator's way of telling us that Peter is quoting the Old Testament. You see, they would look back at their time in bondage in Egypt, generation after generation born into bondage. They could not buy their way out. They couldn't earn their way out. They couldn't talk their way out. But even in their bondage, they remembered that they were God's chosen people, that God had set them apart. And so for us, we remember that we were born into the bondage of sin. We couldn't buy our way out. We couldn't talk our way out. We couldn't earn our way out. But God being rich in his grace and his mercy, he pursued us with an everlasting love. And he called out to us and we said, save me for you are my redeemer, right? That God chose us and that we are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And he'd set us apart 
for a purpose. And that purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been called for a purpose. But then they would take that second cup and they would call this the cup of plagues. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 22, Jesus says, while they were eating, he took some bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. For the children of Israel, they would take the bread and they would tear it. And that was to remind them of their affliction when they were in slavery. But then they would also remember what they would call the cup of wrath or the cup of plagues. Remembering that God brought judgment on the Egyptians. He brought judgment on the ones that were holding them in bondage. So Jesus does a little twist on this and he says, this is my body. The bread represents my affliction, my suffering, as I'm going to go be crucified for your sake. But notice what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes this, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's making this statement that Jesus became sin. Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each into our own way, and God took the iniquity of us all and laid it on him. All of our sin poured onto Jesus at the cross. All of that so God could judge sin, the very thing that held us in bondage, so that now we are free from sin, that we have been changed. All that has been paid, a debt we could not pay, but God paid it with the highest price. But then the next thing would be what they would call the cup of redemption. I call it the cup of salvation because this is brought to you by the letter S. He made, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. And Luke, it says the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of their sins. It's a time when they would look back and they would remember that by faith, they took a lamb and sacrificed it and took the blood and put it over their doorway. And that as God passed over any household covered with the blood, there would be life. And so us too, Jesus is reminding us of his blood that was shed for us because it's in his blood is the only way that we can have new life. 600 years earlier, Jeremiah had said that God will make a new covenant with us. He will take his word and he put it in our hearts and we will be his people and we will know him. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ that gives us new life, that we are bought by his blood and it's life in the blood. And now the spirit of God indwells inside of us that we are holy and set apart and we can live for him to proclaim his great name. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Jesus didn't come to abolish Passover. He came to fulfill it because he is the sacrificial lamb of God, set apart, died for us, and there is power in the blood of Christ. But that last cup is what I'm referring to as the son of man. They would call it the cup of praise. 
because they would look back and have praises for God because God redeemed them and brought them out of bondage, brought them out of Egypt. Do you have something to praise God for today? He chose you. He bought you. He gave you new life. He's indwelled you with the Spirit of God so you can live for Him. Do you have something you can praise God for today? Amen. Right? I want you to look at Mark chapter 14, verse 25. Jesus says, or says, Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's almost as if Jesus takes that fourth cup of praise and he pushes it aside and says, I'm saving that when I come again, that one day I will come again. And there will be praises and shouts in heaven because of that. Daniel writes that the Son of Man will be coming on the clouds of heaven. That Jesus is coming again. There's no doubt that plan is certain. That plan is sure. Social media can't discredit him. The culture can't cancel him. Hollywood can't buy him. Governments can't legislate him. Kings can't rule him. Armies can't prevent him. And our enemy can't stop him. Jesus is coming again because he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is faithful and true, and humanity can't ignore him. He will keep his promise because his promise is sure, and he's not slow about keeping his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There's certainty in God's plan that he is coming again. But until that day, may we have that same attitude which is in Jesus Christ, that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, coming in the form of a bondservant in the likeness of man. And having the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And for this reason... God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus. Yeah, this is really the audience participation part, right? That God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus. Jesus, amen, right? That every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on the earth, those that are under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Until that day, may God empower imperfect people to accomplish his plan as we submit, seek, and serve him, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Pray with me. Dear God, I just thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that your plan is sure. Our redemption is certain. Father, I thank you in the blood of Jesus Christ who changes us, transforms us, and gives us a new life. Father, may you be glorified in everything we do today. Father, may you give us the courage to say yes to you today, to trust you, to follow you, to praise you for glory in Jesus' name forever and ever.